Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of a silent prayer. One thing you might remember in terms of prayer, so I had a... um, Email interchange today with uh, Roy Zuck. Roy was one of the uh, two. He's he's been the, the sort of the Dallas Seminary editor for all their publications down through the years. And uh, Roy uh, looks like he just had a couple of uh, tumors taken off of a, his bladder, and they think that it may it's going to be malignant. So he asked for prayer for that. And um, if you've got the Bible Knowledge Commentary, it's edited by Roy Zuck and John Walvoord, so that puts him in a context for many people, but um, uh, he's, a, he's a great guy, great individual. Let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Father, again, we're thankful that we can come to you in prayer. Scripture teaches that uh, we have access to your throne of grace because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, because he has opened the way, uh, he has torn the veil, and we have direct access because he is our high priest seated at the right hand of your throne. Father, we pray that uh, tonight, especially remember Roy Zook and his diagnosis and the uh, tumors that were taken off of his bladder, we just pray things will go well and that you will give him strength in whatever the circumstances are and that he can be a faithful witness to you. Father, we pray for your guidance and direction as we study your word this evening that we can come to understand uh, your ways and your purposes a little more clearly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in Romans chapter 1. Just to uh, pick up the context, in verse 13, Paul said, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you, just as among the other Gentiles. And then he says that he is a debtor or under obligation. This is because of what God had uh, gifted him to do in terms of being an apostle. He has that obligation or responsibility as an apostle to take the gospels, take the gospel 
And then he uses two uh, pairs of words that this is a, called a merism when you use two opposites and it describes a whole, like morning and evening, night and day, um, inside and out. These are all merisms. So he says he's under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, two classifications of Gentiles, the Greeks being the those who are educated, sophisticated, and the barbarians being those who are beyond the pale out in the darkness somewhere, uh, uneducated, uncultured, unsophisticated. So it includes all of the Gentiles, and then he uses another set of synonyms, the wise parallel to the Greeks and unwise parallel to the barbarians. Verse 15, he says, So as much as in me I am ready to preach the gospel, evangelizo, meaning to evangelize, to bring the good news, to announce the good news that sins have been paid for. Jesus has died for sin. Sin isn't the issue anymore. I am ready to proclaim the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For explanation, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. That was his methodology. He always went first to the synagogue where he taught that Jesus was the Messiah, went through the Old Testament prophetic passages indicating that there would typically be a split within the synagogue. There would be those who would respond to the gospel and accept Jesus as Messiah and those that would not. And then he would typically be kicked out of the synagogue. And then he, those who had responded would go and start a church. So he always went first to the synagogue before he went to the Gentiles. And then in verse 17, we find an extremely important verse. This sets out the, excuse me, sets out the theme of the epistle, the whole epistle. He says, for in it, that is, in the gospel. And in his use of gospel here isn't a narrow use of gospel in the sense of only that message which is required to believe in order to have eternal life. But he uses the gospel to refer to, in a plenary sense, to the uh, whole realm of theology that flows out of the gospel. In other words, the doctrines that are fundamental to uh, Christianity. So he says, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And this introduces the theme, the topic, let's say, the subject matter of Romans. It is to uh, explain the righteousness of God in relationship to mankind, to human history, how God's righteousness has been violated by the human race and how God's righteousness is satisfied by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and how that, how the righteousness of Christ then is imputed or credited to the account of the person who believes in Christ so that they are saved not on the basis of what they have done but on the basis of the righteousness that they possess from Christ. This is the basis for God saying that they are uh, justified. Now, this is a tremendous verse, but there's a little controversy uh, about this verse. How should it be translated? Should it be translated the justified by faith, 
shall live, or should it be translated, the justified shall live by faith. In the first way of translating it, the justified by faith shall live, the emphasis is on how those who are justified by faith shall live in their Christian life after salvation. In the first formulation, the justified shall live by faith. It's just a fine shade of a difference, but it puts the emphasis on the fact that their post-justification or post-salvation life is by faith. The first puts the emphasis on being justified by faith. The second puts the emphasis on living by faith. So we have to answer this question, and this is another quote from the Old Testament, from Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, 2.4. And so we have to understand how Paul is using it, because the meaning that he is giving this phrase in Romans 1.17 isn't exactly the meaning that Habakkuk had when he originally wrote this back in uh, to four. So we've gone through this in detail, but we will do it one more time just so it's clear in this series. We've done it in more detail in the Acts series on Tuesday night, and that's in around Acts lessons 15, 16 or so. And so those who are listening to the series via MP3 or watching videos online, they can go and listen to those lessons in Acts for a more detailed analysis of these uh, four ways in which the Old Testament is quoted and used in the New Testament. And this is based on how the rabbis used uh, quotes from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Bible, in different ways, using what we refer to as fulfillment language. And the first is this idea of literal prophecy, literal fulfillment where an an event or verse in the Old Testament clearly is predicting something. It is saying that something is going to happen in the future and then when it is fulfilled in terms of prophecy, then the New Testament quotes it as fulfillment, saying this is fulfilled. And our first example is Matthew 2, 5, and 6. This occurred when the Magi came to Herod and said, we have uh, been following the star, the king of the Jews has been born, we've been following his star in the east, and we want to know where he is. And this was big surprise to Herod. Uh, Herod was extremely paranoid, especially of Parthians. And the Magi were Parthians. They were a tra- tribe of Medes that uh, go back to before, prior to the time of Daniel, that when the Medes joined up with the Persians and defeated the Babylonians, uh, this tribe of Magoi or Magi um, were the astrologers, soothsayers, uh, the guidance counselors, as it were, uh, the privy council to the uh, uh, Babylonian king. And by the time you had the collapse of the Babylonian Empire, I mean to the Persian king, excuse me, I misspoke, to the Persian king, when the Persian Empire uh, is defeated by, by Alexander, and then it basically it reemerges. Now, where's Persia? Persia is modern Iraq. Uh, when Persia reemerged, 
It reemerged after the collapse of the Greek Empire and its uh, division into four sections. You had the rise in the east of the Parthian Empire. And the Parthians extended their empire uh, westward to where it butted up against the eastward expansion of the Roman Empire. The Romans were never able to defeat the Parthians. And early in Herod's reign, when he had been put on the throne, remember, he wasn't Jewish, he was Idumean or an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. When the Romans put him on the throne of Judea, uh, it was shortly thereafter that there was a Parthian invasion from the east. He got knocked off his throne and he managed to escape to Egypt and catch a fast boat to Rome and uh, picked up a Roman army and they um, came back and helped reinstall him on the throne and, def- and uh, move the Parthians out of Judea. So Herod had this great fear of the Parthians. Now, among the Parthians were this, this group of magi, the, the Magoi, uh, a, a tribal group or actually a religious quasi-religious sect of soothsayers that by the time, this time in the Parthian Empire, they had become the kingmakers. They were the ones, uh, they were kind of like the army in Egypt right now. Uh, they were the real power source in the Parthian Empire. And when one king died, then it was the Magi that, that uh, uh, anointed and uh, picked and anointed the next king. So when you have a group of magi who are Parthian kingmakers showing up on King Herod's doorstep saying, we're looking for the king of the Jews and it's not Herod, Herod's um, paranoid factor just went off the scale. So he's just vibrating, but he can't let it show because he's the king. And so he tries to figure out where's this king of the Jews that's not me. So he called for the... Uh, scribes to come and tell him where the Messiah was supposed to be born. And they informed him, in, uh, according to Matthew 2.6, in Bethlehem in the land of Judah. For, and Ma- quoting from Micah 5.2, that out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's not a direct quote of Micah 5.2, which is also up on the screen, but it is a direct fulfillment. You have a prophecy, literal prophecy, Literal fulfillment. Now, that's how most of us want to interpret Scripture when it says, such and such fulfilled the Scripture as it was written. But that's not how they use that word fulfillment in that uh, strict literal sense. They used it in these four different ways. That's the first way, the one we're most, uh, most used to. Then you have a second use, which is called literal Historical event. It's not a prophecy. The original context in the Old Testament is not predicting anything. It's simply describing a historical event or situation. And then it is, but it is a type or a shadow or a picture of something that would take place in the life of the Messiah or in the future history of Israel. So in Matthew 2.15, we read that Joseph and Mary, after they were warned by the angel, they went down to Egypt with the baby uh, Jesus so that uh, he would survive the slaughter of the babies that was instituted by Herod, and that he was, they were there in Egypt until the death of Herod. 
that it might be fulfilled, that we have that fulfillment terminology, what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now that is a direct quote out of a uh, the first of the twelve, the twelve so-called minor prophets, when Hosea, talking about the historical exodus from Egypt, said, when Israel was a child, that is, when the nation was in infancy, God says, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, this also connects to a statement in Numbers 24 in the prophecy of Balaam, indicating that the Messiah would come out of Egypt. So Hosea is connecting that, but he's going to Exodus, talking about the nation Israel as the adopted son of God. And then this is is a picture, it's a pattern, a shadow, a foreshadowing of what would happen in the individual life of the Messiah. So Isaiah 11, 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. And that's applied to Joseph and Mary bringing uh, the young Jesus out of Egypt and going to Nazareth. So it's a typological fulfillment. Then we have the third kind, which is an application. It's not a type. It is looking at a series of historical things that happened. And you have another set of historical things happening at the time of the New Testament. And the writer is simply saying something like, this is like that. It's an analogy where in, let's say, five or six things that are the circumstances of the, of the original event are only one of which is analogous to what's happening at the time of the writing. And it's that that's used as an analogy. So we have Matthew 2, 17 and 18, which describes the slaughter of the infants by Herod in Bethlehem. And Matthew writes, then was fulfilled, notice each of these uses that term, Matthew 2 is a great chapter to illustrate all of this, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So the thing that we have to recognize is this is the historical situation. It occurs in one of the times, uh, probably in um, uh, 598 or uh, 586 B.C. during one of the conquests by, um, by Nebuchadnezzar of Jerusalem when a group of captives are being taken as hostages or taken back and being deported to Babylon where they'll be retrained. And so these mothers, Jewish mothers, are seeing their children being taken away and they'll never see them again. It's not that they're dying. They'll never see them again. And so they're standing by the roadside witnessing the deportation of their children and they are weeping for them. Now, Ramah is a village north of Jerusalem. But this is being applied to the weeping of the mothers in Bethlehem, but Bethlehem was south of Jerusalem. There is uh, the weeping and mourning at the time of Jeremiah 31.15 is in roughly, um, the, the time period is uh, roughly either the 596 and the second, con- second attack by Nebuchadnezzar or, 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 or 598 or uh, 586, which is the third attack. 
or and, and this is at the time of, of Jesus and at the time of Nebuchadnezzar, the the children weren't killed, but at the time of Jesus, the infants are being killed. Rachel is the wife of Jacob, also renamed by God Israel. Uh, Rachel is viewed as the mother of Egypt, I mean the mother of Israel. And so Rachel depicts or stands in for all the mothers of, of Israel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So the writer, Matthew, is applying this. It's saying what's happening at the time of Jesus with the slaughter of the infants and the mothers weeping over the murder of, the ch- of their children is like what happened at the time of, uh, of Jeremiah 31.15. This is like that. So that's the literal history and application. Then the last example is a summary where the Matthew says that, that Jesus returned from Egypt. He came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, that we have that word again, fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, nowhere is there a prophecy that says the Messiah is going to be called a Nazarene. But as I pointed out to everybody several times, we all get a chuckle out of it, every place, every place you live, there's somebody down the road that's thought of as being less bright, less intelligent, less talented than wherever you are. In Texas, we often make fun of people. In Arkansas and Houston, we make fun of people. In Pasadena, in uh, Virginia, they make fun of people. In West Virginia, uh, every place has their location like that. Uh, in um, uh, in Israel, in the ancient world, it was Nazareth. It's just a small town, probably didn't have a population exceeding 150 or 200. It was considered a backwater of backwaters. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? No, it can't. And so the, uh, the summary is that Nazarene stands for somebody who's just backward and educated, not really going to contribute anything to history or to society. And this reflects the teaching of the Old Testament about the Messiah, especially in Isaiah chapter 53, that he would be despised and rejected among men. That's Nazarenes were despised and rejected by their neighbors. So uh, this is a summary of different things that are said about the Messiah being rejected by his people. And so it's simply said he's going to be called a Nazarene. It's just an idiom, a figure of speech for someone who's rejected. So, um, back to Romans one seventeen. So, how is Paul using Habakkuk two four here in Romans one seventeen? For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, the original quote is from Habakkuk two four. Behold the proud. Who's the proud? Don't guess. You may be wrong. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. So let's turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk. And tonight we're going to go through the book of Habakkuk. That's one of those sections in your Bible that doesn't have, uh, the pages aren't really discolored because you don't go there very much. Uh, 
Same's true for me. It's getting worse with the electronic Bible all the time. I never go places. Habakkuk. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's Habakkuk. How's it? See, I'm having trouble tonight. It's these skinny pages in here. I just keep flipping right past it. Here we go. Okay, Nahum, Habakkuk. Okay, this is really one of the most interesting. I, I, it's one of my favorite little books to teach because in, uh, when Prof. Hendricks taught Bible study methods in my first year at seminary, one of the things we had to do was read through as an exercise about a, about a month into the class was read through uh, Habakkuk and to chart it and to summarize it and synthesize the whole book, which was the first time I'd ever done anything like that, taken a whole book and put it all together. And it's really interesting because Habakkuk is a book that answers a question that everybody asks at least once in their life, if not many times in their life. Now, you may not admit it, but everybody asks this question at some time, and that is, why do bad things happen to good people? And that's really what Habakkuk is asking. He precedes that question with the question, why do, to, do good things happen, or, or why don't bad things happen to bad people? In other words, I'm looking around here, and all these people are losers. They're all disobeying God over and over and over again. It's been going on for a long time. God, why don't you judge them? And then... He realizes that God is going to judge them, and there's a lot of them that are not necessarily participating in the evil. So how come all this judgment is going to happen on those who are innocent? So these questions are basically around how does God judge in human history, and why is there evil, and why is there suffering to people who are not, uh, not evil, and why isn't there more suffering to people who are evil? Those are basic questions everybody asks. Now, we don't know anything about uh, Habakkuk as an individual. We don't know where he was from other than somewhere in the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. At this time, the northern kingdom is gone. So we don't know anything about his personal life, his family, his heritage. Some people think he was a priest, but the evidence for that is pretty slim. And we don't know uh, when he lived exactly, where he lived exactly, other than obviously in the southern kingdom sometime just prior to the invasion of the southern kingdom by the armies of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. His name means to embrace in the Hebrew. And Luther wrote of him that Habakkuk signifies an embracer or one who embraces another, takes him into his arms. He embraces his people and takes them to his arms. That is, he comforts them and holds them up as one embraces a weeping child to quiet it with the assurance that if God wills, it shall soon be better. The exact time of this prophecy is uh, not real, not known. Some think it was as early as the reign of Manasseh. If you remember from our study in Second Kings, Manasseh reigned for a long time, 40 years, he was the most evil king in the southern kingdom. Then he was followed by his son, uh, Josiah. Josiah was a good king. Josiah died in 609 at the Battle of Megiddo when he was fighting, uh, fighting the Pharaoh. And then uh, his son, Jehoiakim, uh, came to the throne in 609 and reigned to 598. 
And it's during his reign that we have the first deportation in 605, and then just after him, the second deportation in 598. The first deportation included Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, and Daniel, otherwise known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's their uh, Babylonian names. They were deported in 605. Uh, there's a prediction here of the destruction of Jerusalem in uh, verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5. And uh, in that, um, God says, I will work a work in your days. So it couldn't have been as far back as Manasseh because uh, Habakkuk wouldn't have lived as long as from Manasseh to the time of 586. So it was relatively, uh, relatively close. The setting comes at a time that we've covered recently, so some of this will mean something to you. Uh, the Assyrian Empire has been uh, waning, and the Assyrian Empire is down to the point that they are finally defeated in 609 by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar and his father Nabopolassar. And they are defeated at the Battle of Carchemish, and, uh, and, and, excuse me, in 605, they're defeated at the Battle of Carchemish, and then uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes a pivot and heads south and defeats the Egyptian army so that he is in a position now of ascendancy. He controls everything from Egypt uh, almost to, um, to uh, Afghanistan, everything. So once again, Israel is surrounded by her enemies, not too different from today where Israel is surrounded by her enemies. Egypt, who knows what's going to happen in Egypt down to the south uh, in this time of turmoil. Egypt, Lebanon, a Iranian proxy state, terrorist state on the northern border. Uh, Syria is always hostile to Israel. Uh, the only friend among her immediate neighbors is Jordan, uh, with whom she still has a peace treaty. But we don't see things a whole lot different. Hanging on by a thread, surrounding by enemies. Now, one of the uh, characteristics of this particular time is the people were in out-and-out out rebellion against God in some of the most horrible ways as they're practicing the fertility cults with all of this sexual perversity uh, perversion that went along uh, with it. It is a time of violence, a time of, with all the wars going on around Israel, the conquest of the, of the Babylonians. Uh, externally, it is a time of instability, chaos, crisis, and war. Internally, it is a time also of violence. It is a time of uh, people doing whatever they want to do, a time of rejection of God. They don't listen to the prophets. They have rebelled against the prophets. They have um, um, assassinated or executed uh, several of the prophets, including prophets like Isaiah, who was uh, sawn in half. And it is a time of the rejection of, of Moses, a rejection of the Mosaic law. And yet there's still a remnant of believers in Judah a remnant of those who are obedient to the law, a remnant of those who are worshiping God, and Habakkuk is one of those. And he is a righteous man, and as he looks at what's going on in the culture around him, 
and he sees all of the depravity and all of the violence and all of the immorality and all of the perversion, uh, much like many people today look in different aspects of our culture, he says, God, it can't be long before you judge these people. If you're going to be true to your word, what you said in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, then you need to judge these people. How long are you going to let this, these unrighteous, perverse, violent people continue in their depravity? You need to judge them. And that's how he opens, opens up, uh, his, uh, the, the first chapter. This is his question that is covered in the first four verses. And he's really asking the question, um, why does it seem that the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? This is a theme that you find in several of the Psalms. Why do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? And he brings this question out. He says uh, to the Lord in verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear. It's as if God is insensitive. He's indifferent. He doesn't uh, care. He, he sees the iniquity, the wickedness, the violence, and everything, and he just isn't doing anything about it. The subtext is, God, are you really there, or do you really mean what you say you mean if you've just let things go uh, so long? And um, he says, won't you hear even uh, everybody I cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. And this is not saved in the sense of going to heaven. This is saved in the sense of delivering the people from the sin that is taking place. Uh, it's the same root word used for uh, salvation or deliverance. Uh, Yeshua, where we get Joshua, which is, has that same root, and Yeshua for Jesus, both have that root uh, of this verb to save. And then verse 3, he says, uh, <clears throat> he's saying, How long shall I cry and you will not hear? Why do you show me iniquity? In other words, why do you let me see all of these horrible things that are going on around me and cause me to see trouble? He's a little self-absorbed. He's a little self-righteous. But this is his, this is his question. Why is all this happening around me? Um, why do you let me see this iniquity and see this trouble for plundering? Look at what he mentions. Plundering. And violence are before me, strife and contention. Therefore, the law is powerless. Now, that's the New King James Version, and that's a wimpy translation. The uh, Hebrew word that's used there is a word that means uh, to be numbed or chilled or frozen. The law is frozen. It's cold. Nobody's paying any attention to it. It just got stuck in the freezer somewhere, and somebody closed it. Nobody's paying any attention to the Torah anymore. The law is frozen. And justice, mishpat, that is the application of the law, justice is powerless. It's impotent. There, because the law is ignored, nobody can get justice. If you don't have, if you don't have justice, then there's no value for life or property or a future because everything is uh, in limbo. Everything is in turmoil. You can't count on anything. So the economy is wrecked. Your planning for the future is wrecked. There's no stability. Everything is destroyed because there's no rule of law. And there is nothing but corruption 
among those who are ruling. Now, this is the cycle of civilizations that occurs time and time again, that when the leadership, the ruling elite, whether they are elected, whether they are a business elite that's put into power, whether it is some sort of oligarchy, a combination of business leaders and uh, and political leaders, politicians and civic leaders, whatever the circumstance is, once you lose this foundation in righteousness and integrity, then instability comes in, uncertainty comes in. That's part of what we're seeing today. There is nothing that is more embarrassing to this country than most of the people who are operating either in the civil service or in Washington as elected leaders. And they have no sense of objectivity. They are most more concerned about their own power and preserving their own political power and whatever base they can establish that gets them some kind of uh, extra money. And there's all kinds of hidden deals that take place uh, in Washington, and the corruption there is just gets worse and worse. But as bad as many of us think it is here in the United States, go to some place like, um, like uh, Belarus or Ukraine or uh, some other countries in the world where the corruption is generations deep, it is embedded in the culture. You go to the Soviet Union, uh, the whole concept of corruption and, and bribery and lying and stealing and, and thieving from those in positions of power goes back centuries. It happened under the Tsars. They just changed the names of the people when they, you had the Bolshevik Revolution. And then when the Soviet Union collapsed, the people that were in power in the military and in the KGB and in various political positions just changed sides all of a sudden. And and in, in the disorder and chaos of the collapse, they went out and grabbed what they could grab. And, um, and it's all power play. And nobody cares about the rights and the freedoms of the individual citizen, and nobody has any concern for that. And this is true in in Ukraine. I was there, what was it, five or six years ago when they had the Orange Revolution. You may may remember seeing pictures of that on TV and where you had tens of thousands of people came to Kiev and camped out on the main street, Kreshatik, um, and they uh, camped out there for two months. The initial election was deemed to be, for uh, president, was deemed to be corrupt, and it was between uh, Yanukovych and Yushchenko. And uh, Yanukovych, uh, Yanukovych won, but it was deemed a corrupt, stolen election, and so the people revolted a lot like what's going on in Egypt right now. And uh, they, w- they put so much pressure on the government that uh, UN sent in some people, and they declared the election null and void. They, post- they had another election some three months later, and this time uh, Yushchenko won. And there was great hope that this would be- bring on an era-, era when they would be pro-Western and there would be more freedom and it would uh, give rise to more capitalism. But the corruption is just so deep. I mean, it's layers and layers and layers deep 
that one man can't change any of that. And so he couldn't change it. He was constantly fighting it. And you just had one group of oligarchs dealing with fighting another group of oligarchs. And it never it didn't really change anything. Then with the economic collapse of the last two or three years internationally, uh, people just blamed uh, Yushchenko. And so in the election last year, they put Yanukovych in. They elected him. And so he's going around, and anybody who was aligned with Yushchenko is being charged with criminal activity and being put in prison, and he's aligning himself more with Putin in, in Russia. And so the great hopes of democracy, this is why I'm so skeptical of what's going on in Egypt. We've just seen this too many times over history. Uh, it's great. I wish them well, but uh, I will be very surprised if they don't end up with something as bad, if not worse, than what they had. That is the tr- that's how history goes, and those who don't read history well are disappointed. We dare not be idealistic because then we're living in a false utopic mentality. And so they, they, they just had this, this, um, uh, this collapsed in, in Ukraine. It's getting worse and worse. And this year when I was over there talking with different people, talking with people in the Jewish community, people in the Christian community, again and again, all they said was the corruption here is so bad, so deep, I don't think anything can ever fix it. And it's just not going to get any better. And that's what, that's the situation that you had in Judah. And that's the situation we're going to have in this country if there's not a major overhaul. But the leaders always reflect the people. If the people don't have integrity and virtue, the leaders will not have integrity and virtue. And the more the culture moves in the direction of, of, um, of a- absolute uh, licentiousness in the, and, and moral relativism, then the more you're going to destroy the, uh, the fabric of integ- that's necessary to produce the kind of integrity you need in leaders to do the right thing. And you get to a point in a culture where when people who want to do the right thing come along in a culture that has slipped to the point where more relativism has become the norm, then those who hold to an absolute standard are viewed as the enemy and they become ridiculed and they become attacked. Personally, we're seeing this in, in a number of cases. We can see it and see, have seen it before that when somebody seeks to try to um, have any kind of investigation to expose uh, you know, illegal activity or corruption, what happens is they get attacked personally. That's the great way to attack things. Don't deal with the facts. Just attack the investigator personally and destroy his life, and then we can go forward. So we're already seeing uh, things like that happen. There's very little hope. Don't put your trust in man. Put your trust in God. That's always the message. So this is the corruption that um, that Habakkuk is looking at, and he says, God, why are you making me look at this? This is horrible. Where's your judgment? I thought you were involved. I thought you cared. And then the Lord gives him a reply, starting in verse 5. And he says, the Lord says, first of all, uh, look around you. Wake up. Look at the nations. Uh, Quit focusing on the domestic issues. And look at what I'm doing on the grand chessboard of human history and the nations. As Assyria has been destroyed and I'm raising up Babylon, uh, you're going to be astounded at what's going to happen. These pagan Chaldeans are going to be my instrument to bring judgment upon Judah. Judah has been unrighteous. Yes, I've given them time. See, 
the bottom line question of why does why do bad things happen to good people and why does evil exist and God seemed to allow it to exist and to continue is because God gave the human race freedom. And we have freedom to do wonderful things and freedom to do evil, horrible things. And you can't limit one without limiting the other. And so when God allows man to make those choices, God is going to give them the rope to hang themselves and to go to the extent of their depravity. And God is always going to be calling them back to change, to repent, to turn back to him. Because once God stops, it stops. It's over with. It ends. There's judgment coming, and they're destroyed. So God gives them grace. He extends their time, gives them opportunity to turn back to him. That's his, that's his grace. So, But the time comes when he, ultimately God has to bring that judgment and he's bringing, and he warns that now's the time and he's bringing that against the nation of Judah. And he's going to do it through the Chaldeans. Verse six, for indeed I'm raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth. And there are twelve things listed in these next verses that describe the Chaldeans. They're described as fierce, which is they're bitter in temper. They are, uh, angry. They're violent in their, um, in, in warfare. They're impetuous, which means they are swift. They are fast. Uh, they march throughout the earth. That means their armies are continually conquering new places. The next line, they conquer many places. They're, uh, they're dreaded and feared. They strike terror. Uh, they listen to no one but themselves. They set their own standards and their own agenda and they are a law unto themselves. They're swift as leopards. And uh, next, they are described as, as more fierce than evening wolves. Actually, the idea is keener or sharper, more uh, attuned to what's going on. They can respond quickly in uh, the battlefield to what is going on and uh, win their victory. They swoop down on their horses like eagles, surprise attacks. They come from violence. Um, their faces are set like the east wind, which indicates the fact that um, that they are set they're hard. They're not going to succumb to compassion. They gather captives like sand, so they defeat so many. They're just multitudes, an innumerable multitude of captives. They scoff at kings. They don't care about the rulers of these other countries. Then princes are scorned by them. Uh, they deride, verse 10 says, they deride every stronghold and they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. So they have the ability to conquer and defeat anything that's thrown up in their path. So God's description of the Chaldeans in verses 5 through 11 basically spells out the horrors of being defeated by the Babylonians and the conquest and what was in store for the southern kingdom of Judah as they would come under Nebuchadnezzar's uh uh, gaze three different times he would invade the land and only the last time would he uh, conquer, destroy uh, Jerusalem and destroy the, the uh, first temple. So what's happened here? Habakkuk says, Lord, look at these people. They're perverse. They're unrighteous. Why aren't you going to judge them? And then God says, well, I'm going to judge them. I've been giving them time to repent. Now I'm going to judge them. See the Chaldeans over here? I'm going to bring them to judge them. 
And then Habakkuk, what? You're going to use, the Chaldeans are worse. How can you use these horrible people to judge us? We're, the, we're your people. How can you use these horrible, perverse um, Babylonians and Chaldeans to judge us? And so the, he, this is his second question that's covered in verses uh, 12 and 14. He says, you're a holy God. How can a holy God use these wicked people? And uh, God's answer is that he is the one who controls history and he can raise up whomever he wants to uh, to bring judgment upon his people uh, for their violation of, of his law. And so in verses 13 through 15, there's a, de- a description of what this uh, conquest would be like. Verse 14, Habakkuk says, Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? He says, Why do you allow this to happen, is what he is saying. And God's answer is broader than just the individual situation. He thinks in terms of the scope of history. And he pictures how he is going to use this to bring judgment upon Israel for the purpose of eventually raising them up uh, so that they are a nation that is righteous and worships him and glorifies him. But as he does that, God is going to answer this question. We get into chapter 2, which begins with Habakkuk saying, I'm going to stand my watch. I'm, it's a mental watch. I'm going to look out for this. I'm going to observe this and write about it. He says, and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me, and what I will answer when I am corrected, understanding he will be corrected by God. Then in verse 2 of chapter 2, we see the answer that God gives. The opening salvo from God is in verses 2 through 4, actually 2 through uh, 5. And this is where we see the, the quote that shows up in Romans. Then, starting in verse 6, we have five woes, five woes announced against Judah. And when it is over with, Habakkuk is going to recognize that God is the one who is sovereign. And the conclusion in verse 20 is, but the Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. He recognizes that he was judging God, uh, God's way of conducting himself in history, and he understands the justice of God and how it has worked itself out in the history of Israel. And he's basically saying no one has the right to judge or question God's ways. Why? Because we do not know all that God knows. So let's just look briefly. I want to come back to verse 4, but briefly we'll see the beginning of God's answer. He he instructs Habakkuk in verse 2 to write down the vision. Write down what you've said. Make it plain on the tablets that uh, that he may run who reads it. In other words, this will serve as a warning to those who read it and who pay attention to it. And then he says, this vision is for an appointed time, and at the end it will speak and it will not lie. He's not talking about the end of days. He's speaking about uh, this coming judgment. And then in verse 4 he says, Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him. Now, who's the proud? 
The proud here are the Chaldeans. They are the proud, they are the arrogant, even though God is using them to bring discipline against the southern kingdom of Judah, that does not absolve them of their guilt, their arrogance. Two wrongs don't make a right. Israel, Judah is wrong, rather, and they need to be punished for their rebellion against God. The Chaldeans are wrong, but God's going to use them in their unrighteousness to punish Judah, and then God, in turn, will bring judgment upon uh, the Chaldeans. There will be justice uh, in history God does not forget. So in verse 4, he he starts off, there's a parallelism here. Behold the proud. There is an analysis of uh, of this group. They are called proud. And then there is... uh, a diagnosis that is given, what happens to the proud? The diagnosis doesn't come until you get down into verse 5, uh, second half of verse 5. He is like death and cannot be satisfied. What happens to the proud? He dies. In contrast to the proud, we have the just. What happens to the just? They're going to live. Now the question is, how is this should be translated. Most English translations translate the just shall live by his faith. But the word order in the Hebrew is what you see on the top line of the chart on the screen. The righteous by his faith shall live. So when we look at this passage, a couple things I want to point out. First of all, the word translated faith here is the word emuna. Now, there's a lot of controversy over how this is translated. If you look at most translations written before the last 20 or 30 years, this is consistently translated faith. The contrast is between the pride of the Chaldeans and the faith of the faithful, of the believers, rather, in Judah. And Yet, this is the only place in all of the Old Testament where Amunah has that idea of faith. Every other place, it's faithful. So you'll see some uh, modern translations who will translate it faithful. But there's a judgment that is being pronounced on both the proud and the, the, um, the just. And that is, the judgment is, or is that the proud will die, the just will live. Well, you can't pronounce the judgment if you've got an open-ended value. The open-ended value is faithfulness. How do you know if you've been faithful enough? It doesn't fit the contrast. There's no, it's not a contrast between the unfaithful and the faithful. It's between the proud, those who have no faith, and those who have faith. And so it is This is why still you have uh, most commentators and most translators understand that this should be translated faith and not faithful and is accurately translated that way. The, uh, The just, by his faith, that's the second word as I have it translated in the top line, they are righteous by faith. Abraham was declared righteous for his faith in Genesis 15:6. He is declared righteous on the basis of his faith, not on the basis of works. 
works do not make us righteous enough. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. And so the point in verse 4 is in contrast to the proud who die, the one who is justified by faith shall live. Now, there are five woes that are announced, and I'll just hit them briefly. In the first woe, and the word woe in the Hebrew is a hey, which is like our soft H, followed by an O and a Y, which would be translated or stated as or pronounced hoy, and has come down through Yiddish as oi, which is where we get our word oi. Okay, that's where it comes from. It means woe. Uh, the basis for a judgment. And there are five of these woes here. The first is that um, uh, the people are uh, uh, the judgment on the transgressors because they have, and this is against the wicked, these are the Chaldeans, uh, because of their uh, ill-gotten gains. They have... uh, Uh, taken too many spoils, they have plundered too many, this is unrighteous, so God will spoil the spoiler and plunder the uh, plunderer. The second woe begins in verse 9. The first woe is from uh, the middle of verse 6, all of 7 and all of 8. 8, because you plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. So the plunderer shall be plundered. He's announced, God is announcing, he, just as he will use the Chaldeans to judge Judah, he will bring judgment upon them. The second woe is in verses 9 through 11, and this woe focus is, focuses on their covetousness and their self-exaltation. They see themselves as the ultimate. They ignore God. They focus on evil gain and for that they will be judged by God. The third woe is in verses 12 through 14. Uh, Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed. They're building their empire on the death and destruction and the uh, violence done to those they conquer. Uh, So they are going to be judged for their tyrannical oppression of captive people. You can never build yourself up on the basis of destroying others. So they will be judged by God for that. And the third woe and the fourth woe, they are uh, judged for the way they have uh, their violent conquest of others. And um, this is depicted in the first woe statement in verse 15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor. The The drunken person is typically used as a picture of conquest of someone who can't control himself. Uh, the Chaldean lust for power and conquest leads to their destruction. They're drunk on their own power. They're drunk on their own lust, and they will be uh, become conquered as a result of that. This applies also in, for any individual, any nation. When the leaders in business and government serve uh, themselves at the expense of their customers or at the expense of the citizens or stockholders, and they become ruled by their own lusts and their own passions, then they will be easily destroyed because they become slaves to their own uh, sin nature. The fifth woe, judgment is pronounced upon them, again, because of their uh, 
dishonesty because of their unrighteousness. It's a very quick statement in verse 19. Woe to him who says to wood, awake to silent stone. This woe is the judgment on their idolatry uh, because they are worshiping idols of wood and stone that they've overlaid with gold and silver. And the conclusion in verse 20 is that the Lord is in his holy temple and all the earth keeps silence before him. God will bring judgment in the right time and in the right way. This causes a change of thinking on the part of Habakkuk. This is his prayer in chapter 3, which I don't have time to go into fully tonight, uh, but we'll just summarize it, that he recognizes that at the beginning he questioned God's judgment because God didn't do things the way Habakkuk thought God ought to do things. He didn't judge sinners the way Habakkuk thought he ought to judge sinners. And then when God told him how he was going to do it, that in turn offended Habakkuk. But when God explains it, he gets it. He recognizes the principle of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, God makes it clear that his ways are his ways. He is the sovereign God who rules history, and he is going to do things the way he deems best because he's omniscient, and he knows all the facts. And when man as the creature comes along and says, well, God, you should have done it this way or that way, we have a microscopic, infinitesimally small amount of data, and we're trying to extrapolate from this grain of sand size of knowledge, and we think that grain of sand is the size of the universe. And God's knowledge is actually the size of the universe and beyond. It's infinite, and he knows all the knowable And what he will do will be just because that is his essential nature. And this is what um, the conclusion that Habakkuk comes to. And so he concludes, the Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on high hills. The life that he's talking about here is life in the midst, the fullness of life, not eternal life in terms of spending eternity in heaven, but life even in the midst of judgment, even in the midst of defeat, the life that God has for every person who is a believer. So when we look back at verse 4 and the phrase that justified by faith shall live, he's talking about the mentality of the believer who can surmount any circumstance, any difficulty, because he is walking with God and therefore can have the fullness of life. Now, if we plug that in, just in conclusion, back into Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about. This verse, I'll give you more reasons for this when we come back next time, but in verse 17, um, Paul says, For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Just as it w- the righteousness or justice of God was revealed for Habakkuk, so it is revealed for us in the way God deals with the believer in the believer's life, that the one who is justified by faith shall live. In Romans chapter, uh, the last part of chapter 1 through chapter 4, the focus is on how a person becomes justified before God. It is by faith and not by works. In Romans 5 on, the issue is the the results of the of justification by faith. Chapter five, he has peace with God. Chapter six, seven, and eight it talks about the believer's life 
and how he can live uh, in service to God, uh, 9, 10, and 11 focus on how God's righteousness is demonstrated in his dealings with Israel, and eventually Israel will be saved, and that is the life for Israel. They will be justified by faith, and they will live, and then you have final application in chapters 12 through 16. And so this lays out that the the outline of the book, that those who are justified by faith shall live. That's what Romans is all about, and we'll come back and look at that in a little more detail next time before we get into the first major division of the book, beginning in verse 18. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to go through these these um, passages and to look at Habakkuk tonight. pray that you would help us to understand these things and realize that just as in the time of Habakkuk when there was international chaos and domestic crisis, just as we see today, that we can have real life, peace, happiness because of our relationship with you so that no matter what happens in terms of the details of life, we can have stability because we know you are in control of history and ultimately and eventually there will be justice because you will bring it about. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.